Turning your Bibles with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 5. We'll continue our series through Matthew and uh, through this Sermon on the Mount as we are working through the Beatitudes. First, we talked about blessed are the poor in spirit. If you are poor in spirit, what happens? You get to have the kingdom of God. Doesn't seem to make sense, and we've talked about how these are very paradoxical in the way they present the, in the way that Jesus presented them. The poor don't get anything. The poor don't inherit a kingdom. But here he says the poor in spirit are the, are the people who get the kingdom of God. Those who recognize that they have nothing to offer. That they are completely dependent on the charity of somebody else in order to survive. Those are the people that God welcomes into his kingdom. And it is likely that that's what Jesus meant when he said, no, welcome those children. Because the kingdom of heaven is reserved for those. Those who don't own anything of their own. (laughs) They're completely dependent on their parents. We must recognize that we are completely dependent on God. If we're going to enter into his kingdom. Then we talked about that those those who mourn are blessed and they will be comforted. We mourn because we are deeply stained by our sin, by our depravity. But yet, for the person who actually recognizes that, there is comfort for that person. Those who say, no, no, it's not a big deal. Yeah, I know everybody's a sinner, but everybody's a sinner. I don't have to feel guilty about it. People who are too puffed up, those are not people who receive the comfort from the Lord. And we saw that true mourning from a poor spirit that recognizes sin leads a person to be able to receive the seed of meekness. Meekness, which is a trait that Christ himself spread around everywhere he went. Even in his anger, he was angry meekly because his anger wasn't about himself. It was about the good of others, the good of of God's glory. And today, we're here getting to Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, where it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Have you ever, we just recently had a butterfly farm in our house. Not a farm, just like a little homeschool project where we um, wrote to this company, ordered a little, it looked like a little hamper with a zipper on top and came with, five caterpillars in this little in this little tin and those caterpillars over time they eat and they eat for a week or two or I don't remember how long it was I hope Tucker learned more than I did Um, but eventually they make a cocoon and after seven days or something like that that cocoon opens up and a little butterfly top drops out completely different than what it used to be. Have you ever observed something like that? Have you ever done something like that in your own home? If, you never, if you'd never heard of a butterfly, if you'd never seen a butterfly before, never learned about butterflies before, you'd just think that that's how it was born. You wouldn't have any concept that it used to be an ugly little caterpillar. I mean, we had a caterpillar climbing up our tree the other day, and me and the kids were observing it, and it was the ugliest little thing. Yellow, hairy, spiky caterpillar. So ugly. (laughs) 
Um, and we wouldn't have any idea that a beautiful, majestic, delicate butterfly could come from something like that. But did you also know that, you know, for instance, the monarch butterfly, the monarch, butter, monarch caterpillars, I don't know what exactly that's called, a monarch caterpillar, they only eat from a certain type of plant as a caterpillar. They only eat one thing. They eat milkweed. That's why monarch butterflies, if they're going to go lay some eggs, they go lay their eggs on a milkweed because when it hatches, they're going to grow up and to get these caterpillars and they're going to eat that milkweed. And then they're going to form their cocoons. And over a specified amount of time, they're going to turn into a butterfly. And did you know that when they turn into a butterfly, they don't eat milkweed anymore? They eat something completely different. They eat nectar from different flowers. One particular, but I can't pronounce it, so I'm not going to try. Um, but their, their hunger, their appetite, completely changes. We all know about the form that changes, but we don't really recognize that when a butterfly is transformed from a caterpillar, its entire appetite changes. It doesn't want milkweed anymore. It wants the flower. It wants the sweet nectar. And we need to learn from the caterpillar. Because some of us think that we are going about our business. We've made a confession of faith. We have professed faith in Jesus Christ. And then business as usual. Business as usual. Carry on as you were. Sure, we make some changes. Maybe we start going to church. That's fine. Maybe there, maybe we quit drinking or smoking or something. I don't know. Some sort of, some sort of, that's not little, some sort of thing, some major thing that we know we're not supposed to do because that's what they preach about at church. You're not supposed to do this or that. Okay, okay, I'm willing to conform. But has your hunger changed? Has your appetite changed since you've been made new? Because we really are kind of like that butterfly. I do wonder if that butterfly is just supposed to show us what we're supposed to look like when we receive this transformative power of God. Not only do we look different, but it's not just about looking different. Stuff on the inside is different too. We have a new appetite, a new desire that is supposed to be there. Just like when it says, blessed are those who mourn. There has to be some mourning over sin. That's got to be there. But do we miss out on that? Simply because we don't want to, you know, we want to push ourselves into some sort of confession that we're not really ready to make. But we're like, man, if I don't pray this prayer, I'm going to go to hell. I don't really want anything that God has to offer except His forgiveness. But I just, I always want His forgiveness. I don't care about my sin, really. I just know that if I pray this prayer, God's supposed to forgive me. That's what so-and-so told me. But there's never really any mourning for sin. We were never really humble before God and had a poor, had poor spirit. To backtrack a little bit, these Beatitudes, they're not just beautiful attitudes, as I've read somebody say. They're not just good things to have as part of your life. These are necessary parts of the believer's life. These are not things that we do to be saved. 
But these are things that represent somebody who is ready to be saved. Because unless you're humble, how in the world are you supposed to receive a gift from God that you don't really think you need? So-and-so said, I need to pray a prayer, so I'll pray the prayer. But deep down inside, you don't really feel like you need it because you're not poor in spirit. Jesus said, rarely do you ever find a rich person going to the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because the rich people are notoriously self-sufficient. Those people, most, Jesus himself said, you don't really find rich people in heaven because the rich people are not ready to receive. They're self-sufficient. They don't have, it's harder, much harder for the rich person who has everything going their way to be poor in spirit. So rarely do you find rich people really receiving the kingdom, receiving the righteousness of God. And it's not just wealth. It's also, how do you, what do you think makes you favorable to God? A poor man who is truly poor in spirit is not just, he's not poor in terms of wealth, but he's poor in terms of, I don't have anything to offer God. And if you can't come like that, well, that's the core of receiving the gospel. But we bypass that and we just want to get people saved. So you go oh, pray this prayer and come and get baptized and you'll be good. Start coming to church. But there's no point. There's no humility. There's no mourning. There's <laughs> meekness. No way. My way or the highway. Well, I'm not going to rehash everything that we've been talking about. But here we get to the blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they're going to be filled. Now, most of the time, most of the reading that I did about this concept, this hunger and thirst for righteousness, it, it has to do with um, good works. You want to do the right stuff. And, though, and that's part of it because these, these are similar to the Ten Commandments, Okay. Let's take the, ten, the, the commandment that says, you shall have no other God before me. But then there are other laws that talk about, well, what do you do if there is an idolater? Uh, how do you know you're an idolater? You know, thou shalt not commit adultery. But what are the rules for engaging with adulterers? What are the, what are the laws surrounding marital intimacy? There's laws about that. Um, thou shalt not covet. But then the law hashes out different pictures of covetousness and puts forth laws of things that you're not supposed to do. So that to a degree, they're specific, but to another degree, they're categorical. Because the Ten Commandments are actually pretty broad when you think about it. Covetousness, oh, there's so many different ways you could covet. Adultery, there's so many different ways you can commit adultery. Idolatry, there's so many ways that you can be an idolater. Honor your father and mother. Well, there are so many different ways that you can do that or not do that. So you hash it out. So in, in a similar way, these beatitudes are categorical in the sense that this isn't just one thing. This is an idea, a concept from which flows a lot of other things. And he actually introduces his, um, this sermon with these beatitudes because throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to be hashing out a lot of this. But here we say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. You cannot, while still be scripturally um, um, 
giving honor to the holiness of Scripture without first discussing the roots of righteousness. You can't talk about true righteousness without first determining who got it for you and where it comes from and submitting to the one who made it, who made it possible. Otherwise, we will just... we. The human way is, if we start sending out rules and regulations, well, we start keeping these rules and regulations and then thinking that if I keep them well enough, well, then I'm good. If I don't keep them well enough, then I'm bad. Um, So we have to bracket this with Christ's righteousness. Otherwise, we as human beings, we just have the tendency to fall into self-sufficiency. And through this conversation about rules and regulations and righteous living we slowly but surely begin forgetting poor in spirit, mourning, meekness, because we lose sight of true indwelling righteousness. And we begin to focus completely on external righteousness. That's just the way of people. That's just the way we work. So we have to constantly be talking about indwelling righteousness and where it comes from. Certainly, we all have the ability, you don't have to be a Christian to develop good habits and to keep away from bad habits. It's not like everybody who's not a Christian is just this drunk person running around cheating on his wife all the time and um, addicted to all sorts of drugs. Sometimes we act like that. All those other people are, are so wretched and miserable and horrible. No, that's not the way it is. Everybody has the ability to have good habits and disciplines. We all have the ability to donate our money and time to good causes. Um, and a lot of people do it. In fact, I've seen a study that shows that Christian, you know, Christians and non-Christians, they are relatively equal in how much money they donate to their different churches or charitable causes. Relatively similar. We even have the ability to begin corporations and different missions with the intention of doing good in the world. You know, there are things called, you know, like Feed My Starving Children or Doctors Without Borders. You don't have to be a Christian to be part of those. But those things are started from people who have a sense of right and wrong, a sense of compassion for people who need help. You don't have to be a Christian to have an understanding of justice and fairness. In fact, different governmental systems have been established in the name of justice and fairness. Capitalism to socialism, they're all ideally an attempt to try to make things fair and just. You know, things such as NATO, trying to organize multiple different nations in the co- for a co- in, under the cause of justice. See, the world has a desire to see justice happen. The whole world. The whole world has a desire to see good and not evil. It's not like you don't, there aren't even on television, even the most corrupt of shows that you can watch, at the end of the day, the good guy still wins because people want to see the good guy win. We have a, everybody has some type of a longing to see good happen, to see justice, to see righteousness. That's why there are so many crime shows out there. 
the bad guys getting really close to getting away scot-free, but then they swoop in and they figure it all out and throw the guy in prison. Yay! And then we come back and watch the next one, because the good guy always wins. We like to see that. We like to see the good. Everybody likes that. Almost everybody. <laughs> you don't have to be a Christian just to want what's right. We all want, we all have a sense of what's right and what's wrong in a sense. We share different commonalities in that regard. But does that mean that we all shall be filled? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Does that mean that we all shall be filled in the way that Christ is talking about? Just because we all have this desire to see good and not evil? No, that's not the case. Because we have to start with indwelling righteousness. And then you move on to external righteousness. And when dwelling righteousness, let's, look at, let's talk about that a little bit. In order to speak of indwelling righteousness, we first must talk about the mother of righteousness, justification. Look at Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. We introduce this passage with a very straightforward verse that some of us have heard before. He says, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Okay? So we're establishing an order of events. Okay, you've received Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, go walk in Him. But first, the receptiveness needs to be there. And that's kind of what these first several Beatitudes are really all about. Who can receive right, the righteousness of Christ? Who is going to be the one to prostrate themselves before the Lord and humble themselves before God in a position where they're going to receive it? Because we're not all in a state of mind or heart that we're ready to receive the gospel. Not just because we reject, reject it conceptually, but because internally we're just not, we don't, we're not convinced that we really need it. We're not poor in spirit. We're not beggarly. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, first you have to come to the point where you receive the Christ Jesus the Lord. So walk ye in him. That's the point where it really matters. Okay, but let's talk about this righteousness. Verse 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So you have, you're rooted, built up, established. You are secure in faith. Faith. And then you abound in it. Abound in faith. In thanksgiving. And then he goes on to say, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. We're going to... He builds this idea. I'm not going to sit on this right now. We could, but let's let, let's let Paul build this idea for us instead. For in him, talking about Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. He says you are complete in him. When you are in Christ, 
by faith. There is nothing lacking. You are full. There is nothing lacking. You may feel like there's a lot lacking. And we may talk about each other like, they, like you have a lot lacking. <laughs> but it says you're complete in Him. What's complete? We've got to expand this concept. Let's keep reading. In Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Okay, so circumcision is one of those shadowy concepts of the Old Testament where if you wanted to be part of the body of God, part of the chosen people of God, as a male anyway, you had to be circumcised. But that circumcision was prophetic. Prophetic of Christ who would come. All these symbols in the Old Testament, a lot of this stuff when you think, you read through, when you're reading through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you're reading all these rules and regulations, and you're like, why in the world is that even there? Like, why did they have to be circumcised? That doesn't make any sense. That's kind of a strange way of saying you're part of God's people. Have you ever thought that before? Like, why in the world did he even set that up? Well, for prophecy. If there's ever a question like that that comes into your brain, it usually has something to do with imagery related to the Messiah that would come. That's how a lot of that stuff worked. So here he's talking about the circumcision of Christ. What does that even mean? Well, circumcision at its core is you're cutting something off. I'm not going to go into too much detail. Jesus was cut off from the land of the living. Jesus was cut off from the nation. Jesus was cut off from the religious people. Jesus was cut away and cast out like a thief, like a robber, like a criminal. The circumcision that made its way all throughout the Old Testament in the traditions of the Jews was prophetic of the day where we would actually obtain our place in God's kingdom not because of something that we cut off ourselves, but because Christ was cut off. Because Christ was wounded and separated from the people, rejected by man. That's what that's a picture of. And now we follow him in his circumcision, made without hands, it says, by putting off the body of sins. Our sins are obliterated. They're cut off from us. The sins are cut off from us and cast away. As far as the east is from the west, to the depths of the oceans, so far are your sins removed from you. That's also prophetic of what would happen to our sins when the Christ would come. This body of sins is circumcised from us, cut off and cast away. It's no longer part of you. It's gone. Okay? It's gone. Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So he's also giving this image of baptism, showing us that we are partaking in the, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. How we are killed. The body of sin is killed. Dead. But we rise in new life, newness, like that butterfly. We're new, we're different. All, everything going forward is different. For the butterfly, it no longer has the same goals that the caterpillar does. It no longer has the same form that the caterpillar has. It no longer has the same appetite that the caterpillar has. Complete newness, inside and out. 
In verse 13, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him. How? Having forgiven all your trespasses. That's kind of where it starts. God forgives us for trespasses. Takes it away. And then he, he kind of goes into that a little bit more here in verse 14. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So picture yourself in a courtroom. I, was, uh, I had to go to traffic court once. Has, has anybody had to go to traffic court or something? Um, I guess you don't have to raise your hand. That might be a little revealing. Um, <laughs> there's no shame. <laughs> um, but I was in traffic court once. Um, because I bought a car from a guy who didn't do something right, and then I got pulled over, and it was still the plate that I got from the dealer was still registered to a different car. And anyway, I had to go to traffic court and get it all sorted out. And um, as we're sitting there in traffic court, you you sit there, you get there, you sign in, and then the judge calls your case according to how you signed in. So I got there on when the place opened, but I still had to wait for 45 minutes. And as I'm waiting there for 45 minutes, you're in this open room, and the judge is right there in front of you calling different people up. So you get to listen to all of these different cases. Some of these people are getting thrown in prison, and other people are just paying a fine. And you're sitting there watching it all. But up there, the judge has this book. Has, well, not a book. The, uh, I don't know what the lady's called, but she hands him a file on this person that he's dealing with. And he has this file with all the documents related to the case that he's dealing with. And these are the details that condemn these people. These details before the judge are written right before his face, and that's the stuff that he's dealing with with this person. Hey, you had a DUI and you were still pulled over, so you're going to need to get a lawyer and you'll probably end up in prison. <laughs> um, that was, you know, or, you know, you got, caught, you got caught going 25 miles per hour over the speed limit um, for the third time, and, uh, you know, this and that and the other thing. Different reasons why people are there. So here he's talking about, um, in verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. That's the stuff that we are condemned for. That's the stuff, all the sins that we, are, we have committed that stand against us, that in a, essentially in, in a picture would be in God's hand, in this file, when you stand before God, these are all the things that stand against you. These are all the things that I should condemn you for. God the judge holding these in front of you, in front of his face, saying all this stuff, it's contrary to you, it's against you. I'm going to condemn you for this stuff. Well, what does he say? Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which is contrary to us. He has taken it out of the way and nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. In a way, this is kind of a picture of um, like everybody, every power that could stand against us. He is putting them to open shame. Uh, kind of like in a courtroom where you have different witnesses or um, the, the police, the arresting officer um, that comes against you to testify against you everybody involved in your case, and then Jesus stands up and obliterates their testimonies. Obliterates it. Nobody has anything evil to say about you. Why? Because Jesus Christ comes to your side. Jesus Christ comes to your aid. 
And then he goes on to say, So let no one judge you in food or drink, or regarding to festival or new moon or Sabbaths. Starting with this concept, there's no, before God, there's nothing that you need judged for. How could that be? Well, if there's nothing for you to be judged according to, I guess you're not guilty. I guess you're justified. You're free from the law, from the guilt, the shame of sin. You're free from it. That is the basis for your righteousness. Why? Because Jesus Christ was circumcised. He was cast away. He was crucified. Cut off. Cut down. Broken for you. That's the basis of your righteousness. Therefore, in like manner, all of our sins are cut off from us, obliterated, destroyed. And if there is no sin, all that remains is righteousness. All that remains is justification. There is nothing that God judges you for any longer. Because that handwriting that was against you, it's gone. There's no file on you anymore. You get up to be tried and the judge says, why are you even here? There's nothing, you've done nothing wrong. I have no file that has anything against you. You are free. And he goes on to say, don't let anyone judge you in food or drink or regarding to festivals or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are shadows, which are a shadow of things to come. Okay, he's talking about People, you know, Judaizers coming through and telling them they need to keep all of these laws and all of these Old Testament festivals and all of these things that God commanded in the Old Testament. But, you, but Paul here is saying that, no, those were shadows of the Christ who was to come. Okay? They stood for something, and that something is here now. In that way, he has fulfilled the law. Not that he told us that we no longer need the law, but he's saying, no, all this stuff spoke of me, and now I'm here. You have the substance now. These other things, it's not that they had no value. No, they had value, and I'm here. They prophesied of me. Now I'm here. So now those new moons and festivals and Sabbaths and all those different things that they had to keep, those things are fulfilled because I'm here. And I give myself to you. Those are just shadows. So he he goes on to say in verse 18, Let nobody, let no one cheat you out of your reward, taking delight in false humility. Let me finish this verse, but we're going to talk about that. In worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. So he says, Don't let anybody cheat you from your reward. Don't let anybody deceive you into thinking that you have to do all of these things in order to be acceptable to God. Don't let anybody convince you of this. Because they're delighting in what kind of humility? False humility. You have to be like this if you're going to be acceptable. You have to believe just like this, in this way. You have to look like this. Your life has to look like this. And isn't that sometimes the way we present the gospel? Well, if you get saved, you're going to have to stop drinking. You're going to have to quit smoking. You've got to get rid of that chew. You've got to start coming to church. You've got to do all of these things. And we're proclaiming the gospel of, well, you've got to pretty up your life. 
That's a false gospel, and that's cheating people out of an inheritance. Because then the people start believing, oh, there are ways that I can pretty myself for God. There are ways that I can receive his favor because I will look more attractive. And then you obliterate the potential to be poor in spirit. Let nobody cheat you out of your reward taking delight in false humility. Oh, well, it's just, you know, this is just the way you humble yourself. Oh, I'm just so, I'm so pious. I have just given up so much. I've sacrificed so much in my life for God. False humility. You don't get favor because of what you've sacrificed. You get favor because of what Christ sacrificed. In fact, you had favor already, and that's why Christ was sacrificed for you. God already favored you. You were just still condemned in your sins. God favored Israel even before Christ was crucified. There was no way for their sins to be completely obliterated through the sacrifices of bulls and goats. But he was patient with them until the time Christ would come. So that those who follow God in faith, the faith of Abraham, their sins might be applied to the cross of Christ. Retrospectively, is that the right word? I don't know. False humility, people. How many of us are walking in false humility? We talk ourselves up because we think that makes us more acceptable. We need to understand that you have already received favor from God. You need to receive it by faith in Christ Jesus. Because God has been favoring us since before the foundations of the earth were laid. Even before Christ was offered, the favor of God is what brought Christ down to be offered for our sins. The eternal sacrifice. God doesn't just favor you once you accept Christ. He's already favored you. Otherwise, he would not have sent Christ to you. He loves you. Every one of you. Do you receive it? Do you receive his favor? Are you still trying to become favorable? In false humility. Not holding fast, in verse 19, to the head. And that's why I wanted to take this time to talk about the righteousness of Christ. That we must hunger for. To long for. Because if we don't go and get that righteousness of Christ... All of our work is in vain. Because throughout this Sermon on the Mount, there's going to be lots of talk about what a kingdom person is going to look like. And I don't want to spend all of this time talking about the different types of righteousness we should hunger for right now in, our, in the expression of our righteousness. We need to establish the roots of this. The head. Hold fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you have died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you submit yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. Okay, so what he's saying here is, okay, you've, understood the basic principles of these, you've died with Christ, the sins are gone, so why are you living your life constantly trying to deal with your sins? Yeah, we need to turn from those sins, 
but not so that they might be obliterated. They're already gone. The, this is what I'm call, talking about indwelling righteousness. There's nothing that stands against you. When you, were, when you receive Christ, all of your sin is gone. It's wiped clean. Your past sins, the ones you're currently in, and the ones that are to come. God's, all, God's dealt with those. He's forgiven those things. They're forgiven. So then he goes on to say, if you, So if you've died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to the regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. People have lots of rules that they can give you to try to be better, to be more righteous, to be more sanctified. All sorts of disciplines and habits we can have with the attempt to be, look more favorable. But why? Your sins are already gone. You already have God's favor. Why do you spend so much time and so much effort trying to get God to favor you? You already have it all. You already have it all. That's why we walk with Him. We already have it all. That's why we follow with Him. Because we already walk in His favor. We waste our time trying to be favorable. And he says in verse 23, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom. You know what? We can talk about these different things all day long and talk about how they're good and how they're needful and they have an appearance of wisdom and we can back them up. But what's the appearance of wisdom in? Self-imposed religion, verse 23. Self-imposed religion. False humility and neglect of the body but are of no value in the indulgence of the flesh. So you get back to the hunger. None of this stuff makes us want Christ's righteousness. You're putting the cart before the horse. None of these things that we're following in false humility is helping us with the indulgence of our flesh, the appetites of our flesh. Because we have... <laughs> That's not what transforms us. Do you see? What transforms you is the Christ. What transforms you is faith in Christ. You don't transform yourself. You don't transform yourself. Christ makes you new. And that newness results in transformation. You didn't do that. God did that through Christ. So stop walking in this self-imposed religion, the wisdom that you can back it all up with, false humility, the neglect of the body. That's talking about things like fasting and um, keeping yourself from different things that um, there's a whole ideology behind that. Um, the pursuits of the flesh are all carnal and sinful, basically was the thought. Anything you enjoy in, in your body is wrong, which that's not what necessarily the case. That's a self-imposed religion. That's false humility. That's um, the appearance of wisdom. Because there's stuff you can talk about and back that up with. But all of this stuff has no value against the indulgence of the flesh. You can strip it away from yourself all you want, but you're still going to want it. You're still going to have an appetite for all the carnality that the world has to offer. Except when Christ transforms you. Not that you never struggle not that those things are no longer attractive at all. But the root ap appetite that you have has changed. And now you long to abide in Christ. And experience 
daily His abiding favor that He's given you, that you get to walk in every single day and every single night and enjoy. Okay? This is talking about the inner man. You, you get to enjoy Him, okay? He's enjoyable. It's not more religious to push out all of your emotions. No. Give your emotions to Jesus Christ and experience them fully. And then in chapter 3, he starts talking, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Okay, Now with those things that come with our newness, we're supposed to go and seek those things now. But if you don't have the head, if you don't have the roots, none of that matters. But if you do have the roots, and your appetite has changed, go and get it. Go and get the feast. Go on. Be free. Have your fill. Seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your, as our life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Therefore, because of all of this that you already have waiting for you, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them, but now you yourselves are, put off, have put off all, are to put off all of these things. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Don't lie to each other, since you have put off the old man which, with his deeds. And you have put on the new man which is, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. And that's kind of the end of where we're going to be talking about today. But here you see, run with what you've been given. If you have been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ, run with it. Walk with Him. Walk in Him. Experience Him. Not because, not because you're trying to get more favor, but because you already have it. You already know the inheritance that's waiting for you that cannot be taken away from you up in the heavens. So you don't have to seek any of this stuff here. There's nothing here that should please you like God pleases you, Christ pleases you, and all this that He has waiting for you in the future. None of this stuff is as attractive as that. So put to death all of these things. Why are you walking in these things if you truly have Christ, His righteousness, and His promise? You don't need to. That's not attractive anymore. That's not attractive anymore. You are saved, you are sanctified, you are forgiven, you are set apart. You were circumcised, you were cut off from the world, your sins were cut off from you. You are righteous in Christ. Stop trying to be righteous, you are righteous. But then walk in Christ's righteousness. Because that's, I mean, that's a result of newness. A butterfly does not act like a caterpillar. Because he's made new. Doesn't even want that milkweed anymore. It's a new thing. That milkweed would actually hurt him. He doesn't need the stuff in the milkweed. His body isn't made for that milkweed anymore. It's completely transformed. That stuff now hurts him. It deprives him of true nourishment. You're new now. Does the Spirit urge you to dwell with Him? Then dwell with Him. Do whatever it takes to do so. Are you wasting your time 
on futility in the spirit? Is the spirit urging you to, to abstain from that so that you can go dwell with him? What's keeping you? Has your appetite changed? Do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? Because blessed are you if you do, and you will be filled. Okay? Christ fills you with his righteousness at the moment you put your faith in him. He obliterates all of your sin. He takes away everything that you could be judged for. We no longer need to be judged for any of that, because Christ takes it away. But now we're made new, and now we have newness of life. And now we walk differently because we have been given a new appetite. We can hunger and thirst after righteousness and be free to do so. You don't need all of that old life stuff anymore. You can be free to be who you are in Christ. It'll all be fine. There are some sacrifices that must be made, but it'll be fine because you shall be filled. I'm not going to give you the rundown of how it's all going to work out because I don't know. But here's the promise. You will be filled, okay? You'll have everything you need. You will be satisfied in Christ. To, to close, Jeremiah chapter 2. You can turn there if you'd like, but I'm just going to read it when I get there. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 through 13 says, Be astonished, O heavens, at this. Be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. Why? For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Okay, for the child of God, for the chosen people of God, He is our fountain. He is the one that provides us with nourishment, satisfaction, and He is always there. Always. He doesn't run from you. But we run from Him chasing after these dry pits in the ground that don't even have any water in them. We waste ourselves trying to lick the walls of these dry wells, trying to get some sort of nourishment and just come up dry. When all the while, right behind us, is this bubbling fountain, constantly, endlessly, overflowing with water that we could be bathing in. Just look and see. Go to that fountain. Let your appetite be satisfied. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for you will be filled. Feel free to do it. And see. Put, him to the, put God to the test to see if his promise rings true or not. Go and taste. And be satisfied. Lord, I thank you for your great satisfaction. Thank you for the righteousness that you give to us freely that we don't deserve, that we never deserved, never will deserve. Only Christ gives it to us. Lord, your word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. May we not grow weary in well-doing. May we always be looking forward to the hope that we have in Christ, the eternal life, beauty of your kingdom that we get to partake in and be rulers in one day. Let us be free to just eat the things that we now need. The things that really now satisfy us. The world is constantly telling us, 
all the things that should be satisfying us, but we don't have to listen to that anymore. Yeah, it's wise to the ears of one who has not been made righteous, one who has no fulfillment in Christ, but to us now, we don't have to listen to any of that because we're made new. We're a part of a new kingdom. Give us, Lord, wisdom that is from above, and may it be louder than the wisdom that is below. In Jesus' name, amen.